Welcome to the Springs. If you're visiting our church, visiting this channel, my name is Peter and I serve on the team of elders that lead the church. And I am excited today to kick off our new series, our summer series in the Word of God. It's called The Unshakables. This summer we'll cover 12 important pillars to an unshakable foundation of faith, corresponding with our study in the Purple Book and in our growth group meetings these same topics we'll do all summer. Now today, I preach about the unshakable life, for which we must consider a few important things. Number one, foundations, important foundations, and also the power of story. Now, first thing I want to talk about as I introduce and get to our main text is that foundations are important. Everyone builds their life on a foundation. Now, I didn't say that everyone builds their life on a good foundation, but just that everyone builds their life on some sort of foundation. Now, the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, for instance, I used to call it the Leaning Tower of Pizza when I was a kid. That tower was built on a foundation. It just was an infamously bad one. And it reminds me kind of the, the foundation I built my life on until I knew Jesus. Now, you might say, hey, Pastor Peter, I don't build my life on any sort of foundation. That's kind of antiquated. That, that objective reality is kind of, I, I'm, I'm not feeling that. So I just kind of go with the flow. And I would say to you, that flow with which you go, that is your foundation. It's, it's a shaky foundation to build one's life on good vibes. Because as we'll see, good vibes can't always last. It's a bad foundation. Now because... All life foundations will be tested with trouble and difficulty. A few years ago, I, I preached this same message and I shared that part of our story that every foundation will be tested with trouble and difficulty. And when I said it, it, it felt as almost like a, a hypo, hypothetical future promise. But now, in 2020, trouble and difficulty and considering that within your foundation, it is the present pandemic that we're all in. And therefore, it highlights the same eternal truth. And that is that there is such a thing as an unshakable foundation. One that even death cannot shake. But don't take my word for it. Let's go to God's word. And now, this is our pause moment that we're approaching. This is an opportunity for you to, number one... Gather your Bible uh, and, and maybe a pen and a pencil. Number two, pray for each other that God would open your heart to his word. And then number three, read together John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Ready? You can pause and go do that now. All right, if you're with me now, You've just read our text, John 1, verses 1 through 14, and you've prayed. And I'm going to have a pretty long introduction as I get into the rest of our message. But I have one big idea, and that is this. The unshakable life lives in surrender to Jesus as Lord. Now, I've underlined the importance of a foundation. And now before I preach through John 1, I think it's important for context to consider first how the power of story, how it shapes our foundation and shapes how we live our lives. 
So I'm going to talk about story for a while, and then I'm going to show you the kind of story that the Holy Spirit is telling in the Bible and in John 1 in particular. The fact is that we all live our lives in obedience to some sort of narrative or story. And my personal history uh, is that my life shook apart years ago before I knew Jesus because it was revealed through scripture and through the hardship of my own sin that my life was living for something less than the God who created me. And we all live a life that's built on a foundation and that is narrated by some sort of overarching story. And to live a life that's truly unshakable, our surrender has to be to someone other than ourselves, someone that is truly unshakable to his core. We must find ourselves in his story, in history. Uh, And we'll discover a lot more of this next week when we consider deeper the power of our Christian story. But let's consider the, the general power of story as we get into this word, this text. Stories in general are perhaps the most powerful elements to human existence. We all process life to its core in the core of our being according to stories. We, we use stories to function in the most basic of ways. Stories are the, the great macro narratives of our existence that we operate with. They're the interpretive grids by which we explain and decipher all of the different data that comes our way, whether it's intellectual or emotional or financial or relational data, the things that we see and touch and feel, we we interpret through stories. In fact, this can be good. I think the Bible declares that we're all made for a great and transcendent story. And as we'll see today, the issue of our life is that we tend to live according to the wrong, lesser story. We're all made for a transcendent story that's bigger than us. I don't have to convince my daughters, for instance, to embrace the princess story. I don't have to convince my my son and at least one of my daughters to get all fired up and lit over the superhero story. There's just something innate in all of us that lives for a greater epic story. Something that Disney and DC Comics and Marvel alike just love to exploit and get dollars over. The other thing is this. All worldviews are stories. All ways that human beings group themselves together and operate and live their lives around and all isms are essentially different stories, different worldviews. There's political stories, conservatism, liberalism. There's, there's economic stories, Marxism, capitalism. There's national stories, Romanism, colonialism, Americanism, Texanism. I just made that word up. There's religious stories, monotheism, paganism. Secular humanism. Now, you might not think that secular humanism is a religious story, but ironically, this non-religious story seeks to replace religion and in so doing becomes a religion of itself, which is helpful to consider. Because all stories, another important thing to know, all stories have a few basic ingredients. And I'm going to say at least four. This is what we're going to navigate our scripture through in a second. But All stories have the basic ingredients of origins, or what I'll call creation. And number two, the fall. 
Also, number three, redemption. And number four, restoration. So every story, every ism, every worldview has a creation or origins element to it. We have to answer the question, how did things come to being and what are we here for? Questions like, how how does anything exist in the first place? Every story, every worldview has to answer this question in order to have coherence in the story. This is why secular humanism, which has been around for two to maybe three centuries in the the main framework of Western existence, secular humanism had a vacuum and had to answer this question. Until about 150 years ago, a man in his late 20s did a a one-month study in the Galapagos Islands, and he had this this theory of origins that, that came about, and Western culture for the last 150 years has embraced this story of evolution and natural selection with a blind faith that's really uncharacteristic of science, but is just hungering. Now, I'm not here to, to, to debate the, the scientific merits of evolution, the theory of evolution. I'm not qualified for that. Uh, but I will say that the tendency to take science outside of the realm of scientific method to answer questions that science isn't made to answer, that's not a scientific thing happening. It's something that goes deeper. The human need to to find coherence in a story pushes science or religion or any sort of thing to, to answer those questions with religious zeal. And every story, every religious worldview has to answer the creation question. Number two, we have to answer the the fall question. In essence, what went wrong with humanity? And even Buddhism has an element of this question. One would think, oh, they, they, they wouldn't really say that anything went wrong. But no, even Buddhism, all stories has the, has the answer of that question, like what went wrong with humanity? And necessarily with any story, there is a wrongdoer to answer the question, what went wrong? There's a, a culprit, there's an enemy. In the conservative story, it's the liberals. They're, they're what went wrong. In the liberal story, it's the Karens. Uh, the conservative Karens, especially on Facebook. Sorry, sorry, Karen. If your name is Karen, uh, every worldview has to have a scapegoat. So I guess that's you. But that's not the whole story. Amen? In, in economic stories, like Marxism, it's the bourgeoisie. In the capitalism story, the enemy is big government restrictions. In the Michael Jordan story, it's, it's anyone who's breathing or winks at him wrong, if you've seen the most recent documentary. Now, I, I would say that this tendency to, to villainize and demonize pretty much anyone to get an edge in your game, that's not just Michael Jordan. All of us in this sense, in a bad sense, tend to be like Mike. We, we tend to find someone to use as a scapegoat for why we're feeling the way we're feeling. And, and what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. We tend to reduce the story and what went wrong to the wrong things. And we tend to find the wrong people to blame things on. This is all of us in our existence. And if we can find the right story of what we're really made for and therefore what went wrong we won't tend to blame and villainize the way we tend to do. 
Every story has a creation, a fall, a redemption. How can things be made right? Whether it's go to church, pray this way towards this city, uh, or empty yourself and find your oneness, or, or the secular humanism story, it's get educated. That's really the answer to all the problems, except why are some of the most educated people in history doing the worst things ever? Well, what about find your true self for true redemption or purchase 300 tigers? What you'll find is there's a real answer of redemption if we understand the whole story. Finally, restoration. What is the future hope? Heaven, nirvana, paradise, oneness, self-actualization. Every worldview answers these questions. Now, a few things that we all agree on before I get to preaching our story. Every worldview can agree on four things. Number one, not all stories are the same. That's pretty simple to agree on, right? Not all stories are the same at the same time. That would be, that would be blow our minds. That is a contradiction. Number two, though, watch out for this one. Not all stories can be true at the same time. That means some of them aren't true. They're false narratives. Number three, some of us are stuck in the wrong story. That's the story of my life. Uh, it makes me think of show when I was a kid, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. They're this movie about these two really smart guys who went back in time and found themselves caught up in the wrong story, and it was dangerous. We all, like Bill and Ted, tend to find ourselves in the wrong story based on our misunderstandings, our emotional healing that's needed in us we sometimes find ourselves in the wrong story number four we all want to be in the right story right we don't all want to live for something lesser than we're made to live for we can all agree on that and so now for the preaching some of y'all are like man finally he's actually going to talk about the bible yes remember the unshakable life lives in surrender to jesus as lord If anything else serves as your story, it will be shaken apart. That's the harsh and exclusive reality to the Bible. But listen, if it's true, this exclusive, harsh reality is the most merciful thing that I can declare to you about our story. And you can believe it. Or at some point, be shaken into seeing it on this side of life or the other. Today is your moment to consider afresh the unshakable Jesus story. So let's walk back through John 1 and consider these four elements of the story. Number one, creation. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5 as we consider our, the creation element of our story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a great mystery. When John declared this in the first century, in in the, the Jewish world, the subculture that he grew up in, and then, of course, the, the Greek and Roman, the Greco-Roman world that, that had ruled the Jewish people for a few centuries leading up to this moment. He was a, what I call an equal opportunity offender. 
because to say these things offended both the subculture of Jews that he grew up within to the degree of wanting to kill him and to declare what was true and to see so many people believe it and have their lives exchanged and their allegiance rearranged, John would find himself at odds with Roman culture too. To use a word like the word was God. The logos in the original language was God. This word was a sacred word not to be used. It meant the perfect and the ideal. Jesus is the perfect and the ideal. To, to assert that a human being is the logos could get you killed. In fact, that's just what the Roman authorities tried to do to John. It boiled him in oil and yet he survived. This was offense to say, we'll see in verse 14 that he declares very clearly that, that God, Theos, became flesh. This was an offense to, to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And it is a horrible thing to say unless it's true. John declares that God existed before us. And church, for you to understand your story, you need to understand that you are not needed in your own story in the beginning. The doctrine of God's self-sufficiency is beautifully portrayed in these first few verses. In the beginning was God. Not in the beginning was, was my needs, my, my thoughts. No, in the beginning was God. His story has to do with him, his self-sufficiency, his glory. The Father didn't need to, to create us. He wasn't bored. He wasn't needing company. He wasn't getting all antsy with eternal uh, quarantine with the Son and the Holy Spirit. God created us as a merciful projection of His glory to create us in His image. Not because He needed us, but simply because He chose to. He chose to create and multiply His glory in creation. He created you good for His own good. So when we do things like curse ourselves, curse our bodies, it's an offense to God. Right now, right where you're sitting, would you just put your hands on your body? And, and this might seem a little schizophrenic, but this is, this is healing for God, for you before God. Declare over your body, you are good. You are created good. Even say this, in Jesus' name, I bless you. Listen, that's the healing of God to your body. And I invite you this week, come to our growth groups, which are listed on our website. We've been sharing with you. Come to church, come to our Zoom growth groups and get healing for whatever curses that you've declared that are contrary to the blessing you just spoke. God in creation created us because of his perfect glory he created us good in his image and we can bless which he's made that which he's made good as good he went through creation affirming his work as good this was good and he made it and it was good if you look in genesis 1 and 2 he even said that that mankind man and woman is very good this makes me think of my my oldest daughter when she was three she'd be coloring in her coloring book and she would just kind of be self-affirming as she was coloring she'd say this is really good so pretty 
many of my kids do things like this. Self-affirming. This is really good. But did you know that God did that? He went through creation and said, this is good. This is good. You are very good. Part of the fall, which we're about to get to now, is us disagreeing with God for whatever reason, declaring things that he made good to be lesser, declaring ourselves to be lesser than good, doing not good things to that which he's called good. So number two, let's talk about the fall. What went wrong with humanity? It's a a really simple answer. Verses 9 and 10 declare really the essence of sin. John 1, verses 9 through 10, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, his own creation, did not receive him. So what went wrong with the world? Uh, Globalism and the embrace of the wet market. No, not that. The answer of what went wrong with the world was sin. Mankind rejected God, our holy and loving creator. Our first parents did this in the garden. You see it in Genesis 3. The, the whole original spin on the hashtag you do you imperative. It's do what you want, not what God wants. Do what you want. You can't essentially trust what God wants is, is what's best for you. So you do what you want. And the, the irony, the tragic irony of history is that we've never been able to do that. I mean, I want to fly, but I can't do what I want. Uh, I, I want to do the right things and not offend my own conscience, but I've never been able to do that. I mean, as humanity with all of our, our, our glory and how much we've progressed, apparently, we can't beat a virus. We can't do what we want. We need God. See, in doing what we want, we've rejected what he wants. We've rejected his light. And it's not Adam and Eve's story alone, but to the radical core of my struggles, even in my marriage, it's really me doing what I want rather than living in the light of what God wants. In your life, in your relationships, in your work life, this is the core of everything. It's the light of God is being rejected subtly, explicitly, because we do what we want, and it's not what's right. It's not what we're made for. It's not the glory we were created for. That's why we can't just go around being kind and telling people of the gospel, and yet being low-key and just kind of sort of going soft on the sin part of our story. We're not being nice and kind to fail to really diagnose what the Bible diagnoses so clearly. That's what I love about the Bible so much is that nothing so accurately tells me what's wrong with me so it can give the right context in the story about how God can make it right. And I shared my story in detail last week about so much of my self-righteousness and yet uh, simultaneous perversion and deception. And let me remind you that the gift of life cannot be truly enjoyed without really embracing the sting of sin and death. And for me, hearing what the Bible had to say about my sin and my perversion really hurt. But the surgeon's knife heals. 
even as it still cuts. That's what the Bible did for me. In fact, this whole rejecting God's light is carried on the next chapter. John 3, or two chapters later, John 3, verses 19 through 20. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We're made in the image of God. We have his light within us. And yet at the same time, we're spiritually dead because we reject the light in whose image we're made. And so it's this confusing mix where we can do good things, but at the same time, even the good things that we do, we do it with the wrong motives and we do it carried forth by darkness. We're made and created for glory, and yet we're fallen all at the same time. Who will rescue us? This gets to number three, redemption. Jesus came to his own, and he didn't reject the ones who were rejecting him. In fact, he just plowed on through our rejection with his love and acceptance. Verse 12, John 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If we slow down and consider these words, it'll change how we see the Bible and how we see our story, how we see the God of our story. It says that his own did not receive him, verse 11. But then verse 12 says, but some who did, all who received him, were given the right. See, wait, you just said that we didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, those of us who've, all of humanity who's, who've rejected God, we lost our birthright. We, we lost it. We've traded away the, the glory of being his children and we've rejected him and become his enemies. And yet, he presses through that rejection and makes his enemies through his own will into sons and daughters. And we're given this new birthright to become believers and thereby sons and daughters restored to his image, redeemed for something new. No longer are we, as Paul says, objects of wrath, but with this new birthright by faith, we are children of the light, not pressed to utter darkness any longer, but brought into the light. You see, Jesus comes into the world like Mozart entering into his own music or Picasso entering into his own painting. God became man in Jesus. You know, other stories, whether religious stories or really any story, it's a story about how we get to God, how we improve ourselves in some sort of way. But our story is about the God who comes to us to the ones who've rejected him. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is God and giving us the right, the ability to become children of God if we would repent and receive the good news. 
And now our rights are granted by God. They're restored by God. Remember the Declaration of Independence? That God has endowed us, we've been endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. You know, our, our founders of this nation were on to something, that rights aren't granted by the government or by medical experts, but by God. But this founders, this nation's founders were also missing something, that namely that we were alienating so many humans of their allegedly inalienable rights, as we've done in our nation and any nation to people of color, to indigenous people, to the unborn. And why? Why is it that when God grants us these rights, we've alienated people? Because we've alienated ourselves by sin. And that's why someone else has to press through our alienation, our rejection, and give us a new redemption, a new power, new rights to receive and be born of a new will, a new flesh. Not the will of man, but of God. That's why our redemption is so strong. That we have alienated our own rights, but he makes us new and gives us new rights to be his. He redeems us. He initiates and he perfects it. You might say, people say, well, that's too easy. We just got to believe in God. Listen, it wasn't easy for the one who purchased the rights by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. It wasn't easy for him. And pride would say, well, I want to try to earn it on my own. But God shows us we can't. And we can receive. To all who did receive him, he gave the rights to become born anew. To receive the inalienable, eternal rights. In other words, all redemption stories are either do or done. Redemption stories are about what you do to get redeemed. Versus our story is about what Jesus has done. And we relinquish our pride and say, Jesus, I cannot do anything, but I receive what you've done. And I receive my birthright to be, above all else, yours. And really, life begins again right there. So finally, let's talk about number four, restoration. Restoration. I want to read verse 14 for you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of who Jesus is, is the framework for our restoration to be all that we are to be from now until all of eternity. It's the framework for all of our joy, all of our thrill, all of our adventure. Life itself is an inside-out adventure of sanctification and purification. From the moment I'm forgiven from my past, I'm brought right to my present with the hope of my future. Life itself is a restoration to that first command of creation to take, to take dominion and care for the planet and grow in him and to spread his image and his glory. But now I'm given the power of the Holy Spirit, restoring me to that ends. The glory of Jesus is what I look at to see pleasure in its uttermost. Really, sanctified hedonism, 
finding my pleasure in Jesus alone and what he tells me to do on this earth is the adventure for which I was created and created anew. That's what life is for. We're not just supposed to stop having fun with sinful stuff. No, we're to fill ourselves with something infinitely better in Jesus. It says here that he is full of grace and truth. Now through redemption, he empties us out of everything that's not grace and truth. By nailing it to the cross, we're forgiven. We're given a new start, but that's not all. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to be full of grace and truth like him by becoming more like Jesus. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit, the gifts, the church, the confession of sin, the the ability to prophesy. He gives us power of grace and truth. Now through redemption, we're forgiven of the past and through restoration, all that we're created for, we're rewired for. And it's such a pleasure. Now as I close, listen to what the great Ravi Zacharias who died just this week Listen to what he says about restoration and sanctification, about finding our pleasure in God. He says, pleasure without God, without the sacred boundaries of the word of God, actually leave you emptier than before. And this is biblical truth. And this is experiential truth. The loneliest people in the world are among the wealthiest and most famous who found no boundaries within which to live. He also said the loneliest people in the world are those who have exhausted pleasure and come away empty. Church, listen, Jesus' joy and pleasure and that alone is inexhaustible. You will never come away empty and lonely with Jesus. Sin, by comparison, is just boredom and Jesus is glory. So lay down every other story. Would you lay it down and be dead to those things and find your life through faith in Jesus? And nothing compares to that. This week, I want to encourage you to fast and pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your friends. Commit to reading the Bible and completing the purple book so that God would give you new eyes and new strength to open his word. Uh, Join a, a growth group this week. And again, you can go to our website to find out how you can do that this week. If you need healing or prayer or you need to be baptized, talk to your growth group leader this week and we can help you. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would help us to find ourselves in your story and to find our greatest pleasure, greater than we could ever know, through your redemption and your healing and your restoration, that which we've always needed. Amen.